Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you soar as others who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Devoted Christian, wife, mother, faithful, God took care of her elderly mother, guarded all her doctor's appointments, constant companion. She brought every one of her five kids to church every Sunday as they were growing up, and when they started having kids, she made sure all of us grandkids got to church with her too. Come and spend the night with her on a Saturday night, and you'd wake up Sunday morning, and not only would she be up already preparing what would be part of that hot lunch we would have after church, she'd also be preparing a hot breakfast for us to eat before church. She would get us all loaded up, we would go and worship together, and then come back and have lunch on her house. And she did all of that on her own, because my papa, while always a good man, wasn't a Christian. And it's not that Paul wasn't a Christian because he was indifferent, as a number of men in his generation were, where, well, I do good things. I don't feel like I need to go to church. No, he wasn't a Christian because he had had some bad experiences with Christians, including Christians he was related by marriage to. That pain had accumulated in such a way that one time when Mama was having open-heart surgery, Papa and their adult children were sitting together in the waiting room waiting, and Papa reached for a Bible. And Papa pulled that Bible out and he flipped to James chapter 5. And he said, All right, you all say you're a church that goes by what the Bible says? Well, how come your elders didn't show up here to pray over here and anoint her before she had her open heart surgery? Now, even with Papa having that sort of attitude, Mama loved him. And it stopped her and exercising her faith. She loved her family. She loved God. And as the oldest of 12 grandkids that they would have, I got to enjoy having her as a fixture in my life. Any medical procedure I at time had done, she was there. Attended a whole lot of band concerts and competitions, quite a few sermons when I was going around different small churches as a teenager. She was at my high school, college graduation. She was at our wedding. And I am the only one of the 12 grandchildren that gets that honor of having her at my graduations and my wedding. Because in the spring of 2010, Mama Linda died. She was just 69 years old. She went to the local emergency room because she had pain in her back. 
And I still remember the call I woke up to the next morning when Mama left me a voicemail in the middle of the night. That that pain was actually coming from cancer that had spread all throughout her body. So she found out she had cancer at stage four. She died two weeks later. Everything happened so quickly. They never even entirely confirmed what type of cancer it was that she had to kill Now, like I said, she was a Christian. Many of us in our family, her children, some of us are her grandchildren at that point, her siblings, nieces and nephews, we were all Christians. But I'll admit, Way probably a bit number of them if they ever knew us. We didn't grieve like Christians. I didn't grieve like a Christian. And to be clear, it's not that anyone doubted that Mama Linda would be with the Lord. In fact, if you look up her obituary, that's the very first line. Linda L. Curry, 69 and went home to the Lord with her family by her side Friday, April 30, 2010. But I realize now that even believing that she was asleep with Jesus, even believing that Jesus rose from the dead, that hope of the resurrection, it wasn't real enough to us. And our problem was not that we grieved. Paul isn't saying here that it's wrong to feel grief. Because when you have someone like that, and many of you do, when you have somebody that is such an example of faith and so full of love and kindness and just been there for so many key moments in your life, there is no way to be separated from them and not Grieve that. What Paul's saying is that we as Christians shouldn't grieve like those who have no hope. <clears throat> Let me give you some examples of what I think that might mean. When we as Christians experience grief, when we're hurting, we shouldn't allow that to be a pass to say and do things to hurt other people. Just because we're hurt, that doesn't give us an excuse to say or do whatever we want. If you are grieving as someone who has hope, you should offer grace when someone else is hurting. Give them good that they're not earning the deserve. We should bear with and offer forgiveness. When somebody says something insensitive or misses an opportunity, you know what, I'm just going to let that go. Because we're all trying to figure this out. We should be people that pray. That when temperatures are rising in the room, that we stop everybody and say, hey, let's just take a moment to pray. Or when people are feeling crushed, we say, you know what, let's read a song. Let's read 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's read Revelation 21 22. Let's refocus. 
Now, we were no different than any other family group, right? If you were to look at what my family went through in the years after my mom was passing, we didn't do worse than anybody else. But we should have been better. I should have done better. We should have had hope. Now, even in our hopelessness, God still works through. God works through Mama Linda's former minister, a guy who had gotten fired by her congregation years earlier, who visited regularly while she was in the hospital. And that got Papa's attention. So much so that after Mama passed, Papa started going to church. Within a couple of years, Papa got baptized. And now in his 80s, possibly even this morning, he leads prayers in the worship services of a congregation that at one point in my life he wouldn't go to. During a recent visit, he pulled me aside in the kitchen and he said, hey Daniel, I got a question for you. I said, sure, Paul. Now whenever I get funerals or obituaries it says that the dead person went to heaven, now that's not right, right? Like they don't go straight to heaven and do that. And said, well, yeah, we're described as being in paradise, we're asleep with Jesus, and then when Jesus comes to us. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. But a lot of times they just skip that, don't they? Yeah, Paul, well, you're right. A lot of times people just sort of skip over that when they talk about it. That's where he's at. Of course, that is where I'm at. I learned a lot through the whole experience. I learned a lot from the comfort of Christians who showed up. Not because they had said, hey, call me if you need anything, and then I called them because I needed something, and then they came and did it, but they just showed up without being asked. They showed up unexpected. They thought about what we might need and then just did it, came and loved us and left. I learned a lot from that minister who showed up, not because it was his job, and then more than he showed up and it wasn't. And there he was. I learned a lot from Christian brothers who drove three hours to be at her visitation and they didn't even know her. They came for us. I also learned from the struggles. I learned from all the ways that I didn't help. Because for my more immediate family, I was the only Christian man at that point. Now, I was 22 years old. But I should have been there. So now I try to. Now, when I'm around people that are dying, I try to model how to put my grief and feelings aside and just be there for the person that's hurt. How to hold their hands. How to talk about what they want to talk about how to caress their hair or wipe their bottom or whatever they need in that moment to feel some comfort and love. I tried to model coming into that room and saying, like, hey, you want to sing a song? You remember Amazing Grace? Let's sing Amazing Grace. You remember Jesus loves you? Let's sing Jesus loves you. I tried to model praying 
and praying in such a way where we're seeking God, where we're wanting to experience his love and comfort. And when I'm around people that are grieving, I try to model some of those same things. I try to make sure that I've got those songs ready. I've got those ways of thinking ready to reframe that pain that we're going through. To not just rely on the platitudes that we all rely on, but to really point to finding God even in the midst of a difficult situation. And this is important as we end this series. Because when we really understand the hope of the resurrection that we as Christians have, then we realize that the hope of the resurrection is not just about changing how we see death. The hope of the resurrection is about changing how we see life. Knowing that Jesus is coming. Knowing that the dead in Christ, like my mama Linda, will rise. And that any of us who are still living when he comes will be changed. Knowing that when he comes, we'll head to the sky. The way an excited crowd of supporters is waiting at an airport for a president to land. Or the ways in those days that people would have run out of their village to greet the victorious king as he returned. When Jesus comes, we're going to be bursting out of graves and we're going to be coming up off the ground to go and welcome King Jesus when he comes to take part in a celebration that will be the starting point of joy that never ends. And when Paul writes these things by inspiration, in 1 Thessalonians, they aren't just encouraging words for a funeral. The words that we are given here is encouragement that changes how we live our lives right now. Just listen to how Paul continues in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Now concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk or drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God is not destined to us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one and build one another up, just as you are doing. What Paul wrote here is beautiful and comforting. It is so good for us to remember passages like this at deathbeds and funerals. But it's not just for that. What Paul wrote here is meant for right now. It's meant for today because none of us know when Jesus will come. Just like he said, he's going to come like a thief. His coming's going to be as sudden as labor pains. Do you all remember what that was like? Ashley's water broke with Rachel in the middle of the night, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. 
And at that point, whatever bag we had packed, whatever preparation we had done with the nursery, it was what it was, because now it was time. This got real, and everything's about to change. That's what Jesus is telling us to be. So we don't want to get caught off guard. We don't want to be spiritually asleep. We don't want to be spiritually impaired. We want that moment to come and find us being active. Find us thinking clearly about things. Finding us doing what he wants done. And we want to live every day of our lives like that. And I want to make sure we realize that. It does not ultimately matter who gets elected president or who gets hired as the next preacher. It does not ultimately matter what your job is or what your health is like. The wonderful thing about King Jesus is that he loves you. He values you. And he has something worthwhile for you to do. No matter what else is going on. No matter how sick you are, or young you are, or old you are, or healthy you are, or rich you are, or poor you are, he loves you. And there's a way you can love and serve him. We just have to wake up. We have to look up. And we have to armor up. Because isn't that a neat metaphor that the Apostle Paul used? That helps you picture a Roman soldier that would have been such a common sight in those days. Or maybe, like it probably is for Paul, it reminds you of what the Hebrew prophet Isaiah wrote back in Isaiah chapter 59, where the prophet saw God himself putting on armor to come and rescue his people. But as Paul's inspired to write here, he says, God also shares that armor with us. We put on faith and love as breastplate. Whenever we are loyal to Jesus, whenever we are trusting him more than anything else, whenever we're loving, not as a feeling that we fall in or out to, not as something that we do for someone that we feel like deserves it, someone that's easy to love, but whenever we <clears throat> love as a self-sacrificing action, it protects our heart. Those everyday choices, those actions that we take, they protect our hearts from being led astray. They protect us from getting stuck and becoming angry and resentful and bitter. And then we put on hope as a helmet because we have some real worries. There are lots of problems, bad stuff out there, so many things that could go wrong. So we protect these heads of ours with the confident expectation that God will save. And a lot of times, God will save right now. There will be things that he responds to us that will be more than we could have asked or imagined. And he'll do it, but even if not, we protect our heads with the hope that we will rise. You see how that works? The hope of resurrection is not just about knowing the right facts 
about what happens after we die, because frankly, there's still a lot that we don't know about that. But what the hope of the resurrection is about is tapping into the boldness to do whatever it is that King Jesus asks of us, tapping into the courage to be willing to sacrifice ourselves, tapping into the confidence to know anything we do for Jesus is worth it, because this isn't it. There's more. And it's not just some wispy, distant, disconnected afterlife. We will be more alive when Jesus comes. All of the best parts of now, made complete, made perfect, made incorruptible, imperishable, eternal, and our hope gets to be. The more that we follow Jesus each day, the more that we experience that right now. That is the blessed hope that we are in. Because just a few pages over in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul wrote to one of his proteges, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If that passage sounds at all familiar to you, that's because it's been our theme this year. Whether you've taken the time to read it or not, you've at least seen this multiple times every service that you have been here for. And it describes what we've been trying to do this year. Because God has a design for us. As men and women, we were created after his image and likeness. We are meant to live the lives that we have in a right relationship with him and with each other. And when we live life according to his design, it's fruitful, it's abundant, but we choose him. Every single one. We try to decide for ourselves what's good and what's evil. We do things that aren't what God created us for, and it ruins us. It separates us from each other. It separates us from God. And we can't undo it. We can't take it back. Even if we apologize, we're going to do it again. We're going to mess up at some point in the future. We need a Savior, which is why Jesus came. Jesus came to save us. He never sinned. And then he gave that life as a sacrifice for our sin, but he didn't say that. He rose from the dead, and now he saves us. But I want to make sure you understand me, because even five years in, I hear things sometimes that tell me you still don't understand me. Whenever we talk about Jesus saving us, I'm not just talking about what happens after you draw your last breath. When Jesus saves you, he saves you right now. Jesus Christ has the ability to save marriages right now. Jesus Christ has the ability to save families, to save relationships right now. Jesus Christ can save lives right now. Now, he does that when he helps us to live differently. 
when he helps us to be new, but that takes training. It's a completely different way to live. Different than we did before. Different than what we're used to. Because instead of, well, do I have to? Well, does it really make a difference if we pray? Well, where am I commanded to fast? Or to come on Sunday nights? Or to do this? Park all of that. Will it help you be more like Jesus? Yes or no? That's what should matter. And when that's what we're pursuing, being more like Jesus, in the good times, in the hard times, that's going to produce hope. That's going to give us an anchor. That is going to be what changes things. Whenever our focus is to do whatever it takes to be more like Jesus, that is going to be what makes the biggest difference because Jesus is what we're waiting for. He's our hope. Your hope's not in a relationship or a job or making a certain amount of money. Your hope's not in earthly possessions or physical health. God can use all of those things. And we should make every effort to use all of those things for his glory. But what we're waiting for, the reason we all still woke up today, is because we're waiting for him. And when he comes, everything changes. And we want to be ready. He gives us the opportunity to start living that way now, to experience joy, peace, and abundance now, to look ahead to the future, not with fear or pessimism, but with hope. Declare these things, Paul told Titus in chapter 2, verse 15. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What we are talking about here is the hope that fulfilled the entire Bible. It's the hope that Jesus embodied, that his apostles went out to preach, that they trained others to live and entrusted to them to pass on. And now I have declared it to you. The next move is yours. Yes. Will you disregard Jesus has brought you. Or will you let it motivate you to do something different? Who do you need to love right now? Who do you need to show some grace to? That you need to forgive right now? What sacrifice do you need to make? What step do you need God's courage to take? Where can you just show up to comfort without being expected to? Who can you gently and respectfully share your 
needs for hope. Or, if you're hearing all of this, but you haven't done this, you haven't been buried with Christ in baptism, you haven't started living a new life now with him, what on earth are you waiting? Jesus is coming. Let's get ready to receive.